Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll extend our reading all the way to verse 21. This is God's Word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and on signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we now come before your throne of grace asking you to meet with us. We would ask that your spirit now would be mindful of our needs, that his wisdom and his grace and his presence would be among us and that something of the Pentecostal power of Acts chapter 2 would be marked in this room as we hear your word both read and explained. We need your grace in this. In fact, apart from you, we acknowledge we can't do a thing. But with you, all things are possible. And so we now come humbly reliant upon the power of that spirit who alone can open up our minds and our hearts. 
and that we would help, you would help us through him to see the beauty of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's about that time of year where the fresh produce starts coming in. Some of you have been to the farmer's market here in Franklin, no doubt, or in Nashville, if that's maybe a little bit closer for you. And some of you have been doing the hard work yourself. You actually have a little garden raised or otherwise in your backyard or on your back acreage or whatever situation that you're in, and you're seeing little plants pop up out of the ground. That is the evidence of seeds that you planted a couple of months ago and evidence of rain and water that has gone into the soil and evidence of sun that has shined on that soil. And lo and behold, the miracle of growth is happening again. I'm so thankful this weekend as it was awards day at my children's school and it was graduation. There were all kinds of fun things going on that my father-in-law and my mother-in-law came into town for the celebration and I love it when they come into town, but I love it when they come into town, especially during harvest season, because they bring us lots of goodies. And we had some of the best new potatoes that you have tasted. And you know what fresh new potatoes, just out of the garden, still had the dirt on them when he showed up with the grocery bag with the potatoes on him. He'll wash them and then cook them and put some butter on it, a little salt and pepper, and, and you get it just the way you want it, and it just melts in your mouth. Am I going on too long? Am I making you hungry? Um, Okay, I'm making you hungry. Well, we'll get there before long. But um, this harvest season that we're in right now, in many ways, mirrors and pictures the harvest season that the people of Israel would have been in the day of Pentecost. Now, it would have been new potatoes that they would have been digging up out of the ground, but it would have been grain harvest season for them. And in, in fact, um, the, the other name for the day of Pentecost mentioned in Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places is the, the, the festival of harvest because it coincided with the reaping of the grain. And it's, it's not without great significance both in terms of history and in terms of agriculture that it was God who chose Pentecost, the grain harvest, to bring forth the gospel harvest, which is what we see here in Acts chapter 2. We see the reaping of the soul's of God because Christ had already come he had planted seeds he had watered seeds he had through his finished work and all of the efforts and labors that he had put in he had made everything just right so that when the Holy Spirit came the people were ripe for picking now that's part of the joy of Pentecost Sunday is to acknowledge that this season of harvest coincides with the church calendar so beautifully that is at this moment, as we're thinking about fresh vegetables in the garden, we're also thinking about fresh work of the gospel in our lives, brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. As you can see at the very end of our passage, which sadly we won't get a chance to dig into some of the beautiful depths of it, especially the prophecy of Joel that's mentioned near the end of our reading. As we look at verses 12, really to verse 21, we'll try to save the, the, the richness of that section for another time. But at the very end of that section, verse 21, we see that Pentecost is moving towards this grand objective, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
That's where we ended our reading this morning in verse 21. That's where Pentecost is moving us to the reality that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to explore that very purpose this morning, that purpose of Pentecost, that when we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. I want to explore that with you, and I want to do it under really, really two headings. I want to look at how the Spirit comes that we might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And I want to look at why the Spirit comes so that when we call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, there is a mission that we're called unto. So we'll look at how the Spirit comes and why the Spirit comes this morning, and we'll consider it in light of the harvest of Pentecost. Now, I want to do this by looking at the things that really you're most interested in when you first read this passage, and that is all of the extraordinariness of the reading of Scripture. This is not what we would call ordinary Sunday go-to-meeting kind of reading. Um, so far this morning, I've not seen a rushing wind come into the sanctuary. I've not seen tongues of fire stand up on the top of your head. Now, if you see one on mine, say something to me about it. I'd be interested in that. And I would love to see something of the Pentecostal presence of the Lord by His Spirit to show up for the multiplication of the church, for the advance of His kingdom. In fact, that was part of my prayer this morning, is that we wouldn't get so wrapped up in the details of this passage so as to lose sight of the fact that this is about evangelism, expansion, it's about salvation, it's about the mission of the world, it's about what it is that we are called to as His disciples. But as I begin to look over these signs, the realization is these signs point us to the grand work of God throughout all of redemptive history. It's a, it's, a, it's a word of instruction in terms of the Bible that when you find something that's odd in the Bible, there's usually a reason for it. And when you see something odd in the life of these moments in redemptive history, you might think, huh. What does all that mean? Have we seen that somewhere before? Is, is there something in the Bible that can shed light on the complexity of, of what it is that's going on in this particular text? And when we begin to ask a question like that, what we begin to realize is there absolutely is. And I want to just take a, take a couple of glances at some passages that will help us with this thing, this wind of the passage and this fire of the passage to kind of give you a picture of the fact that this is how the Holy Spirit comes. This is part of the evidences, the visible evidences. When he comes in unique and special moments in redemptive history, he reveals himself in these ways. Let's start by looking at wind. And maybe just to note this from the beginning, the Hebrew word for the spirit is ruach. And it literally translated, it means wind. It means wind. When we talk about the Holy Spirit or we talk about the breath of the Lord, we are talking about the wind that comes from the Lord. And we see this right at the very beginning of, of Scripture. I want to just go to two places right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, places that you know quite well so that you can be reminded that, oh yeah, this is how the Spirit shows Himself. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, if depending on what translation you're reading, you might actually read the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That'd be a faithful translation of how to get at what is described in Genesis 1-2. And it's a picture almost as we see of Jesus at his baptism. You'll remember how the dove 
descended upon Jesus as a picture of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you look over to this stained glass in the middle, you see that glorious picture of the dove that is there descending. This idea of the Holy Spirit coming down upon the, 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 the Lord Jesus in his baptism is also a picture of the dove riding the wind, hovering over. It's even a picture of nurture or a picture of care. And what we see here with the Holy Spirit, who's coming in creative power in Genesis 1 and 2, that he is a part of the work of God in establishing creation and new life. It's a part of his work. But you see this also in just the very next chapter, Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and then what did he do? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He, he gave wind into the man so that he received the spirit of life. And then notice what we're told after that, and the man became a living creature. Now, what are you seeing in that? Well, you're seeing something pretty significant about the work of the Holy Spirit. He's hovering over the face of the deep. He's bringing into life. He's nurturing into life this nascent creation that is going to unfold in the following verses. And then what in chapter 2? We have a man who's formed and shaped without life until the breath of God is breathed into him. And then what happens? He becomes a living creature. One of the leading works of the Holy Spirit as he shows up in the Bible is he is about the establishment of life. He's about the establishment of life. He comes and he gives to us life, life in a saving and way and life in a creating way. Think of it in a saving way in Ezekiel chapter 38. You know that passage very well. Uh, the valley of dry bones, right? The valley of bones that are all over the place, these dead bones. And the question becomes, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, of course, responds to the Lord, Lord, you know if these bones can live. And what we find is through the wind and the breath of the Lord, what begins to happen? The bones begin to connect and sinew begins to form and skin over the sinew begins to be developed and there's strength and there's power and then all of a sudden there's life. It's a picture of death unto life, but in both cases, what came? The wind. In creative life and in recreative or redeeming life, the wind of the Spirit came. Now let's take just a moment to be reminded of how fire is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me go to another very famous passage that you all know, Exodus chapter 3. This is the story of Moses as he's keeping sheep on a mountainside there in Midian after he has killed the slave in Egypt and has run away for 40 years now, has been in the wilderness keeping sheep. And we're told that an angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire and speaks to him out of the midst of the bush. He says to him, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am, and out of the bush the voice of the Lord comes, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The Lord comes to Moses in the midst of the fire, and he speaks out of the bush that is on fire but not being consumed. In other words, it's no fire that we've ever seen. In fact, it's similar to the passage that's here. These, it, it, Luke recounts it as something that appears like fire, flames of fire. It's not like any fire we've ever seen. He says, 
And notice he says something like the sound of a rushing wind. He doesn't say it's a wind. It's something that sounds like a rushing wind, even a violent wind. So think of it as a strong, mighty wind that came in. These are physical phenomena that actually are supernatural in origin. So this is the case while he's here at the burning bush. This is the, this is the case as the, the wind is hovering over creation, as he breathes into man the breath of life. And then, of course, we know it in Exodus chapter 13 as well. And the Lord goes before the people of Israel as he's bringing them out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and they're going in the wilderness towards the land of Canaan. The Lord appears to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And why does he appear by a, a pillar of fire by night? Well, we're told so that they would have light. They'd be able to see. Now this tells us another of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to Moses and what does he do? He speaks to Moses and what does he tell Moses? He says, Moses, I'm going to redeem my people and you're going to be my redeemer. He gives him direction. He gives him leadership. He gives him, he gives him commands. And what does the pillar of fire by night do for the people of Israel? It gives them light. So why? They can continue to walk. They can continue to see. What does the Spirit of God do? Well, in the wind, he gives forth life. In the fire, he gives forth light and leading and understanding. It's a, it's a picture here of this, this glorious redemptions that we've seen historically among the people of God. And now we're seeing them show up in spades as we look at the Spirit of God coming in the New Testament. And it's a reminder of the fact that when we look at the Bible and we see these odd things that are happening, if we do it with an eye of believing that the Bible is seamlessly put together by God himself, that each of its parts are, are interpenetrating and dependent upon one another and helping fill out the larger story, then we can look back and say, I've seen this somewhere before. Different in form, not quite as fleshed out or revealed, maybe not in this collection. It's the same that we've seen and it's more. It's exploring as we turn each page of the Bible. We begin to realize that, oh, the Lord really is about this work. And as the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, what is he doing? But he is coming to lead his people like Moses led the people of Israel. He, he's coming to lead us out, not of captivity in Egypt, but out of captivity of sin. In captivity of death. And he's not giving us Moses as the Redeemer. He's giving us Christ as the Redeemer. And he's leading us out of Exodus. And if you don't think you're on a pilgrimage, let me tell you something. You are. Because you're headed to the new heavens and the new earth. And this home in its current form is not yet your home. And the kingdom of God is broken in, but it's not yet fully here. And so we are, in a very real sense, looking to the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We're looking by the light of the word. We're looking through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we've got our eyes towards a, a land of Canaan, a place that is going to flow with milk and with honey, a place that resembles Eden, a place where everything is as it ought to be. That's the story that we're all in. It's the grand story of the Bible. What we begin to see is when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, we begin to see by the light of that fire. We begin to follow the instruction of that word. And then what else? The wind blows. We, the wind has blown because it's given to us new life. Are we not described in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 as new creatures in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has 
come? Why, how did that happen? It happened through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you think of the Trinity in redemption, it's the Father who has, who has decreed that redemption would happen. He's authorized it. He's overseeing it. It's the Son who's accomplished it. He's the one who came to earth, accepted the mission, fulfilled all that he was called to fulfill. But it's the Spirit who comes and applies the work of Christ to our lives. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 2. Now, we don't just see wind. We don't just see fire. We, we see, as most of us in this passage are, are clued into, we see tongues. And, and really, the tongues come out of this question. How does the Lord give us life? And how does the Lord lead us? out of the exodus of sin and death into the life of Christ. How does he do that? Well, he does that through tongues. He does it through tongues. He does it through message. Notice this in verse 4. The Holy Spirit, we're told, gave them utterance. This is a gift. This is a gift. This is not something that they decided they would try to work up to get out. This was something that God, by His grace, gifted them in the moment. He's the one who gave them utterance. And then we see the fruit of this utterance, verse 6 and verse 8. Each one was hearing Him speak in His own language. Each one was hearing Him speak in His own language. Now, this is critically important. We're getting a glimpse into the nature of a biblical, informed understanding of this tongue experience of Acts chapter 2. We've had a litany of different types and ethnicities and nationalities and languages mentioned here in Acts 2, from Medes to Parthians to Egyptians to Libyans to Cretans to Romans. We've got all kinds here, these Jewish devout Jews from all these different places who, who are who are speaking all of these different tongues, are on pilgrimage, coming for the from the Feast of Harvest to Pentecost, they've come from all around, they've migrated to Jerusalem, and as they're there, the nations have come to Jerusalem, and now the Spirit of God descends on Jerusalem, and in that moment, He gives known languages to men who didn't know those languages to preach the Word of God. They're hearing the Egyptians are coming in and they're going, those are Galileans. How in the world do they know Egyptian? And the Medes are coming in. Those are Galileans. How in the world do they know the, the Medo-Persian dialect? Wow, he even knows the vernacular of the language of the dialect that I'm particularly in. Those of you who study language, you know, you know, there's Spanish in Mexico and there's Spanish in Colombia. And you know that there's English in the Northeast and there's English in the South. Right? Right? I mean, it, it's, it even has vernacular to it. It's a, very, it's, it's a very complex reality, this communication of language. And we're told that God gave them utterance. So much so that as those apostles were speaking to those who were foreign and expected to be walking around in a Jerusalem where no one would know their tongue, they begin to hear someone speaking, even proclaiming in the tongue that they know. It's a remarkable 
work of the Lord. And in fact, that's the focus of verse 11. We're actually told that they heard them in their own tongue. But what did they hear? This is what they heard. The mighty works of God. You see, it's not just the, it's not just the process through which they hear. It's the content of what they heard. This was, this was the mighty works of God that were pouring forth from the apostles. Now, it doesn't take much brainstorming to realize what this is. Has not Jesus, as we've studied together as a congregation, back at the end of the Gospel of Luke, that eternal series that we've now moved on from, Luke 24, did not, did not Jesus open up the law and the prophets and reveal himself to the apostles, everything that pertains to him. Did he not do that? He did that multiple times. In fact, if you would turn back to Acts chapter 1, you'll see that it's mentioned again. Luke recounts that again. So let's, let's just, it doesn't take big conjecture here. What, what were they preaching? What Jesus told them. What Jesus had unfolded in the word of God, they're now, as Jews come from all over the place, confused. Still looking for the Messiah. Not knowing, and maybe some of them even believing that Jesus might have been the one, but now he's not. And maybe they're coming to this Pentecost with their spirits really humbled and sorrowing because they haven't heard, they've heard of this strange resurrection. They don't believe it. There's nothing about it. And now, in their own tongue, as they come, they're hearing the mighty works of God. He's speaking to them. God is, God is using this moment for the accomplishing of the salvation of the world. He's giving us a case in point, not just an illustration. Not just an illustration, it's a case in point. What do I mean by that? It's an action. It's an actual enacting of what the mission is that we're called to. He took the nations and he brought them to Jerusalem and he preached to the nations so that they would leave and go to the nations. That's what we're called to. He gave us. We don't have to make this stuff up. As to how to do missions, he tells us. He shows us. He shows us. Now, this is what's important, and I want you to see this as we, we conclude our, our time together today. I want you to see that what is happening here with the strange tongues is not as strange as some of us may think. It may not be as strange because when you begin to root it in the Old Testament, you begin to know, oh, wait. There was, a, there was this tongue event long ago that may have some bearing on what it is we're seeing here in Acts 2. And you know which one I'm talking about, some of you. Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. You remember this event. It's a critically important event in redemptive history. And we're seeing here at Pentecost something of what we might call a redeeming or a reversing of what it is that we saw at the Tower of Babel. Now, I want to remind you of what we saw at the Tower of Babel by actually encouraging you to turn there. Genesis chapter 11. We're going to look at the first nine verses. If you don't have a text of Scripture before you, just read it or just listen along as I read it. I want to note a couple of things for you. I think you'll see that there are huge overtones that are connected to where it is that we are here in Acts chapter 2 as God is beginning to do the work of mission. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in, in verse 1, I might make some editorial side comments as I read through this, just to enlighten us as we explore this Pentecost theme. Look at verse 1. Now listen to what we hear. Now the whole world had one language 
and the same words. That's how it begins, Genesis chapter 11. And notice what the people are doing. And as the people migrated from the east, so they're on pilgrimage. Are, are we got people on pilgrimage in Acts 2? We certainly do. Coming for the grain harvest. They're coming from all over the place. They're on pilgrimage. They're on pilgrimage in, in Genesis 11. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, a kind of Jerusalem. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is that in a few chapters, they're going to do a whole lot of this in Egypt. And apparently, they were going to get started early. Um, and because what they're displaying here is a kind of slavery before they're even enslaved. We'll see that. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed throughout the whole earth. Now, some of you, because you're biblical scholars, you think, oh, hey, lest we be dispersed over all the earth. And you're thinking, well, didn't he tell them back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, that they were to be fruitful and multiply and... Fill the earth. Oh, so you're actually hearing disobedience. And you're right for doing that. You're right for hearing disobedience in this passage. They're saying, you know, forget what it is that the Lord has called us to. We're going to stick together. We're going to be more powerful if we do. We're not going to spread this throughout the world. And this is what we continue to read. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. Notice this. One language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So here's what the Lord does. Come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from, from there over the face of the earth and, left, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over all of the earth. Now, I want to make just a couple of comments so you can see how the Lord is meeting us in a rich way here in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But he's hearkening back to this huge historical moment in Genesis chapter 11. And I want you to see four things in several different ways. I want you to first see what man was trying to do at Babel. The first thing that you see is that he, would, he had a unity in words. We're told that he had a unity of language. And a unity of words. And that brought a certain amount of power. A certain amount of ability. A certain amount of understanding. A certain amount of being able to build momentum. For the accomplishment of the task that they had before us. Secondly, they had a unity in place. They had all decided to go to the plain of Shinar. And we decided that we're not going back to wherever it was that we were. We're going to stay here. It's a pretty good place. And I think we can do more together. They had a unity in place. They had a unity of mission. Did you catch their mission? Make a name for ourselves. In other words, we're worshiping just not God. We're worshiping ourselves. And we're going to build a city and a tower that's going to reach into the heavens and it's going to show forth our fame. In other words, it's a lot like living in North America today. Point four, there was a unity in power. Nothing will be impossible for them, according to God himself. Now that's a pretty bold statement by the Lord. I'm going to take the Lord in his word here. He doesn't say that really often. They, anything they put their minds to, they're going to be able to do it because of this. Now, here, what did God do at Babel? 
What did he do? Well, here's the first thing he did, and it, and it led to all the others. He divided their tongues. He divided their language. He gave them multiple, multiple words. And when he did that, did you see what necessarily happened? They scattered to all the different places. Why? Well, for obvious reasons. If in this room the Lord came down and confused all of our languages, do you know what you would do for lunch? Besides be totally bewildered and perplexed and confused, you would go to people, you would go with people of whom you could speak with. That's what you would do. I think I understand you. I think, I think I'll go with you. You begin to build community around communication, around word. And so there was division of words and there wind up being a division of peoples who scattered throughout the nations. And then why? There wind up being a division in the mission. They could no longer keep the mission of staying together and build the tower because they didn't know how to communicate with one another. So there's a division in the mission and then finally there's a division in power. He gets to the power. They will do anything because they're unified. He gets to the power through the language and now we see the power is diversified and it's, and it's spread out and it's splintered among all of the people. Now, if you can have Babel in the back of your mind as we rush to Acts chapter 2, here's what you see that happens in Acts chapter 2, is that God brings back a unity of words. A unity of words. He brings back a unity of message. Now, he does it in the most unique way. He doesn't do it by giving us all one language. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't go back from before Genesis 11. Instead, what he does is he brings a unity of message in the diversity of language. Isn't that amazing? A unity of word, of message in the diversity of language. What he's telling us is that he's not going back beyond Genesis chapter 11. He's redeeming and going forward so that now we will have as we go forward in mission every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Every tongue will now be redeemed. This moment of darkness in biblical history now becomes a moment of light because the Holy Spirit comes and he brings unity in words. But secondly, look at what he does in the very first verse of Acts chapter 2. It's almost as if Luke is taking pains to point this out. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. It's a kind of double entendre. They were all together and they were together. That's what he's saying. They were all together and, and they were all together. That's where they were. It was like saying it twice for, for emphasis. Why would he be doing that? Because of the Tower of Babel. They were all together in one place, but where have they come now? They've come to Jerusalem, the city of peace, the place of God. And now as they've come, they've been on pilgrimage as they came. But what's going to happen? They're going to hear the message of God proclaimed through the apostles. And then what are they going to do? Scatter back to the nations. They're together in one place, but not to stay there. To be sent. To be sent to complete the mission of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To subdue it. You know what the word is there? It's the word peace. To bring the peace of God to the nations. God is doing that at Pentecost. And then he's created within them a unity of mission. You can see the unity of mission they are there now to make a name for Jesus Christ. They're not here to make a name for themselves. They're not here to build a high tower. 
They're here to rejoice in Christ. They're here to experience and to know the power of His Holy Spirit through the gospel. They are now unified in mission under the name of King Jesus. And fourthly, they're in unity and power. There is literally nothing that they put their minds or hearts to in the Spirit that can stop them. Apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. Unless the Lord builds the house, we who labor in vain, we who labor, labor in vain. But when the Lord builds the house, He uses workers, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a unity of power that's being described here at Pentecost that is far beyond, far, far beyond a drumming up of power in our flesh. It's, it's an anointed gifting of the Holy Spirit that comes in proportion to the needs of their day. Now here's the realization. If I could sum this up in one sentence. God is making a people of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. He's redeeming the diversity. He's redeeming the scattering. He's redeeming the socio-political realities. Every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, every people group will be, have a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ within them uh, who believe and unashamedly share the message of the gospel for the salvation of the world. They believe it and they unashamedly share it for the salvation of the world. Why? To make a name for Christ. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 2. That's Acts 2. That God's making a people of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation who will believe and unashamedly share the gospel message for the salvation of the world, for the fame of Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. This is our calling. This is the Christian's calling. This, this is not the unique calling of a missions department. It's not the unique calling of a few people who feel comfortable speaking to others. This is the calling of the church. This is what we have been called to. We've been entrusted with this message. We've been given the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We have been sent out and commissioned by Christ. And we are to walk in the witness-bearing work that He has called us to. And we are not relying upon our eloquence to do so. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians that he is afraid of eloquence. He says, I do not come to you with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, the worst thing you could tell me after today was that was an eloquent sermon. The best thing you could possibly say was I met the Lord Jesus in his word today. And he changed my life. I saw him. I saw him. So much so that you became irrelevant to what it was that he's doing. There's not a lot about the apostles in this passage. But they're the mouthpieces. What we get is the content of what they share. What we see is what the Spirit of God does. That's where the work is. And the proof is in that work. And so what that means is that we have to be a people who are unified in word. We have to be a people who are committed to the message of the gospel because you will have so many other messages 
of the culture and so many other fiefdoms in the world that will try to bring you in submission to their line of thought, their logic, their tagline, their party presence. And the Christian is one who is not bought and sold by the world. He lives by the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be a people who are unified in words. Unified in the word of the gospel. We've got to be a people who are unified in mission. Uh, the mission of bringing fame to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was, it was remarkable to me even just this week as I was meeting with someone who was talking about their sin, struggling in a very particular way in their life. And we're talking about how they wanted to get over it because they know it's just, it's going to ultimately cause a derailing in their life. It's going to truncate their joy. It's going to, all those things, it's, it's right, that's true. But most of the reasons they wanted to overcome their sin are reasons that I often want to overcome my sin. You know what it is? I want more joy. I don't want my life to be derailed. It's really mostly self-motivated. And most of us learn this over our lives. You know, we've, we, we leave Christ for a while and we begin to live loosely. We begin to shirk his commands. And you know what begins to happen? The wheels fall off. Right? And then all of a sudden, when the wheels fall off, we go, I need to come back to Christ. And we realize, okay, that helps. And so what we realize is we go to Christ because he makes our life better. Really, right? At the end of the day, he's a great resource. We wouldn't say it that crassly. But how many of us actually function there? And so we go to him when we need him. Does your, you know, does your prayers kind of feel like a divine bellhop? Have you ever noticed how much you pray when you're needy? It's, it's, it's communicating to you. It's like I'm relating to the Lord because I have needs. I'm not relating to the Lord because I want to be with the Lord. Because I love Him. I want to, I want to be with Him. The question becomes, as we were having this conversation this week, as I said, let's think of how if you were to die to these sins and live unto righteousness more, how much fame it would bring to Christ's name. How, how glorified could Christ be if this sin died a little more and this righteousness lived a little more? What would it be like to be able to share that story with someone and give God the praise for it and see their eyes light up because Christ is being named, He is being praised. What would it be like to be unified in that mission? To live life through those lenses. We've got to be a people unified in words, unified in missions. We've got to be a people who are unified in power. God uses the power of His Spirit to save the world. It's really important that you understand, that I understand, we don't help people change. We don't, we don't have the power to help people change. We can't bring about conversion. You are called into an impossible work. An absolutely impossible work. I am. Do you realize as I'm preaching right now, it has no power unless the Spirit uses it. It has no power. This is, this is words that you will absolutely forget. This is an experience that will go by the wayside unless the Spirit of God lodges it away in you. We are utterly at His mercy. Now that sort of reliance upon the power of the Spirit actually facilitates the work of the Spirit. One becomes a vessel, a means by which to use because we are able then to say, Lord, apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. We are we are beggars in your presence. Would you please come and tell me how to share the bread that I found in Christ with others? 
And we can stumble forward because of that. Because we have the trust of the power of God in His Spirit. And, and fourthly, and finally, this means we have to be a people unified in love. God's saving love extends to all people. And what that means is we must love all people that way. Now, this is going to be really hard. And I'm just going to be really honest. There are people, whether you want to admit it or not, in your life and in my life, that you just don't like. There may be whole groups of people when you're pointing at your television screen that you don't like. Or, or the neighbor down the road that you nurse a grudge against. We are all enemies of God. You do understand that. Apart from the saving mercy of God, we are all His enemies. And He loved us while we shook our fist at Him. So you tell me how much we should love. And you tell me whom we should love. The implication is clear. No one even has to say it. It is, it is the person in your mind that is as far gone as possible. That's the person. Because that's you and me. Without the love of Christ. Without the hope of the gospel. And he came and found you. And he saved you. To the praise of his glorious name, he brought you in while there was still room. It would seem if that message got in us, the least that we could do would be to go out and find someone else. To share that with. That's the work. That's the work. It's a glorious work. It's a powerful work. And so I want you, as we leave this message today, to think in terms of, do I, do I really believe in the gospel, the unity of these words? Am I living in a manner that is unified under the reliance of the Spirit as my only power? Am I unified in mission with my brother and my sisters in Christ? Are we all about this, in this together? Am I loving the world the way Christ has loved me? And the answer to all of those things will in some ways be yes, in some ways be no in your life, and go after the no's until by God's grace through the Spirit they become yeses. And you fall in love with people who hated you. And you start giving your life to the people who you wanted to take their life. You wanted to see their life diminished. And then you'll begin to touch, just touch, the love of Christ for you. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, this is a tall order. And I am quite aware as I say some of these words that I am not where I need to be. And I have a sense that I'm among friends in that reality. Lord, I confess that to you. I would ask that you would remove that from me and that you would remove that from my brothers and sisters in this room. And you would begin to impress upon us in Pentecostal power the realization that Christ in him crucified, raised and victorious from the grave, ascended to power on high, has brought us in, adopted us as sons and daughters, given us the robe of righteousness, made us inheritances of righteousness in Christ, so much so that our position today is not less sure than our position in heaven will be when we get there. 
that your love has been so abounding, so over the top, so unimaginable with regards to its grace that we will wonder how it is that we ever live less than underneath the glory of these riches and how we lived in a manner that was inconsistent to them in relationship with others. Oh, Lord, let us grieve that. And then let us simultaneously rejoice that there is grace still, even for us. And there's time to share Jesus with others. Lord, press this in upon us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.